0: Have a seat if you would. Welcome uh, to everybody who's here. Everybody that's online. We are glad that you are uh, with us today. If this is your first time, uh, we're very thankful that you are with us, and uh, hope that you have a good experience. And we we'll just encourage you to let us know if there's uh, some way we can minister to you, some way uh, you know, we, can, we can follow up or, or, or serve you. So <clears throat> we were walking through the book of Ecclesiastes in a series called Unsatisfied, which was uh, supposed to end uh, on Easter, but just felt like there's a couple of other uh, passages, topics in Ecclesiastes uh, that we need to address. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the emptiness of accomplishment. And if, you, if you're new or uh, just in wave review with the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, it starts out, Solomon says, uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You know, everything under the sun, everything apart from God uh, is, is empty. There's no peace. There's no satisfaction uh, in it apart from Christ. And, you know, we've looked at some different Topics that he says this about. We talked about religion. Talked about wisdom. Talked about uh, pleasure. Uh, We've talked about money. And uh, you know, I would say for me at this stage in my life, this is the one that probably hits me the most because uh, I'm pretty wired to accomplish. I mean, I measure a week in a lot of ways, you know, by what I get done. I mean I think and uh, even Lori, our counselor said to me you're driven. I mean that's kind of how I'm wired. And of course, you know, some of that's of the lord, but sometimes that can be a little bit toxic too. I guess, you know, men especially, we're wired to produce. And uh, you know, that's good, but there's more to life than that. And so Uh, I I read this recently, but um, you know, Dallas Cowboys fan growing up, and uh, you know, back in the heyday with Roger Staubach, and I guess the first heyday, heyday, second heyday was with Troy Aikman and all that. But back when Tom Landry was the coach, and Tom Landry was a committed Christian, uh, he talked about that uh, one of the years when he when he was coach and they won the Super Bowl. He said the overwhelming emotion in a few days among the players on the Dallas Cowboys football team was how empty that goal was. There must be something more. Now if you think if you're a football player and you win the Super Bowl, that's like the ultimate, that's the pinnacle. I mean, aren't you gonna be satisfied with that? But I mean, let's be honest. How many times in our lives have we achieved something, have we accomplished a goal, has there been a big thing that happened, and what do we feel afterwards? kind of a letdown. And we're asking the question, what's next? Or maybe we're thinking, this wasn't all that I thought it was gonna be cracked up to be. Or, uh, you know, then maybe you you accomplished something, like you get married and it's so awesome. And then you have some problems, right? You have a baby and then you discover all the challenges of uh, 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 parenting. Or, or maybe you get a promotion. And a bunch of headaches come with it. Or you get that new house or that new car that you've always wanted and it's something you thought was going to be happy. How many times in life have we said, if I get this or if I can do this, I'm going to be happy. And then it's not enough. And I think the idea is what Solomon's going to say to us here is there must be something more. He's going to say to us that all the things I accomplished, and he accomplished more than any of us will ever accomplish, it wasn't enough. There has to be something more to this you know, sometimes I think about for teenagers. Sometimes you think, you know, if I make a certain sports team, or if I make certain grades, or if I fit in with certain people, or if I look a certain way, or if I get enough follows on Instagram, or whatever, then I'm going to feel good about myself. But it's not enough. What is it that we're looking for? Okay? So, I'm going to use an example from my past that kind of maybe plays into today in a way. Maybe it's, I don't know, you may think it's silly. You can feel free to laugh at me. But so when I was in high school, which um, I I graduated from Morristown West in 1992. Any Trojans in the room? Just one? That's no two. Okay, all right. We need more. We need more Trojans than that, I guess. Uh, so uh, I'm a proud graduate of Morristown West High School. But well, while I was in, at Morristown West, I was on the Scholars Bowl team. <laughs> you, you would have made fun of me, right, Preston? Okay, all right. So here's the picture. Okay, this is from. Um, the PBS studios in, in Knoxville. And, uh, that's me kind of in the, in the middle back there with the really cool haircut and, uh, the awesome glasses, uh, which, you know, um, that's actually a pretty good picture from, of me from that era to, to be honest about it, which, you know, none of that kind of stuff matters today. I mean, we get so up in the air about that stuff when we're teenagers, but I mean, none of that stuff really matters today. But anyway, Uh, Our Scholars Bowl team, when I was a a senior, and I'm guessing this was senior year, but I'm pretty sure it was, maybe it wasn't, but when when, when I was a senior, we won the State Beta Club Scholars Bowl Championship Tournament, and then we went to the National Tournament, and we finished third in the nation. Now, I think that's a pretty good accomplishment, right? I think it's pretty good to finish third in the nation in almost anything, right? I think it it be good to be third in the nation? Like, Preston, if you were the number three Farm Bureau agent in the nation, would, would that be a good thing? Yeah. I mean, that's probably a good, unless you're like number three on America's Most Wanted list, probably number three in the nation is, is, is a good thing, right? But um, I will be honest with you, uh, and you know, part of me is like, uh, you know, that, that was cool. Uh, there's a part of me to which, and, and this is unusual for me, because I very rarely live in the past. I mean, that's just how I'm wired. I mean, my struggle is more to like, you know, accomplish something. I need to more celebrate it before I move on because I'm just wired, okay, what's, what's the next thing? Where do we go from here? I don't think about the past a whole lot, but occasionally, finishing third in the nation at this still bugs me. <laughs> now you say, why? Well, so we're in the semifinal game, playing the team that was the eventual champion, And like in the championship game, they won by like several hundred points. We won the third place match by like several hundred points. So basically our semifinal was functionally the championship. Whoever won that was going to win the championship. So, you know, it comes down to the wire. I don't remember how long the the games were. They were timed. But uh, so with like 30 seconds or less left, we're tied. And so it's like coming down to a final question. So they do the question, you know, you buzz in, whoever gets in first. Uh, I knew the answer, but I hesitated just thinking, "Eh, what if I'm wrong? And, uh, but I, I knew the answer, but so the other team beat me to it. And so I choked, I knew it, and hesitated, and so we lost because of that. And every once in a while, not very often, every once in a while, that will pop into my mind, and that annoys me uh, to, to this day. So instead of being happy about finishing third in the nation, which I've not finished third in the nation in anything else. Any of you finished third in the nation at something? I mean, that's a pretty good thing. I'm more annoyed that I didn't finish first in the nation that I'm happy about finishing third in the nation. Aren't we that way a lot of times with accomplishments? Or we find everything that's wrong. Or we may get 10 compliments and one negative response, and what do we fixate on? We fixate on the negative, right? But there's another thing to the story. Um, So this picture, um, my son sent it to me, but he got it from Coach Noble at Moorestown West. Some of you know Coach Noble. And um, so he, he sent it to Jay, and, and Jay sent it to me, and, um, you know, I actually graduated from, from West with Coach Noble's wife, Christy, but anyway, apparently this photo was discovered uh, sometime a few months ago when they were doing, uh, adding new heat and air uh, at West, and they found it behind one of the old air conditioners. So, we finish third in the nation, and we don't make it in the trophy case. <laughs> you know, it's not the football team. football team's never finish third in the nation, right? Uh, so, we, we finish third in the nation, and we end up behind the air conditioning. I don't even... How does it even end up behind I mean, the air conditioning? I mean, somebody has to put it there. So... Uh, Football player put it, there you go. Um, Behind the air conditioning unit. And I mean, but isn't that kind of what a lot of our accomplishments turn into? They're just kind of forgotten, swept under the rug. And, you know, we put so much into accomplishing certain things and we build so much of our identity then on what we accomplish. And that's kind of how it ends up. Now, what I want us to do in this message, I mean, we're, we're kind of striving for some biblical balance because some of you are like me and you really focus to do and, and, and to accomplish. And we, we can go overboard that way and, and we can be too focused there. But I want to give kind of a couple of caveats so we don't get in the ditch on the other side of the road before we look at the biblical balance. This doesn't mean that our mindset should be, well, I don't need to do anything, Right, I mean, I don't want to get proud about my accomplishments, so uh, I need to do nothing. I mean, the antidote to pride is not failure. Okay, there's a different antidote to pride. And so, uh, there's a couple things I want to point out to you biblically before we uh, get specifically in in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. One is, God created us to work, so work in and of itself is a good thing. I don't know if there's anybody at True Life that really <clears throat> needs to hear this. If, if so, it's very limited, but our culture needs to hear this. I mean, Robert and I have been at two restaurants recently here locally where, as you walk in, there are signs on the door saying, please be patient with us because we have almost no one to work. I mean, I think the restaurant's closing down because they can't find anybody to work. Right? Because, you know, when the government starts giving out all kinds of money and people have no work ethic, they'll people just think, well, I can take a break for a little while, live off the government. But that's not how God designed us. I mean, Genesis 2.15, before the fall, it says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend, which means to work and to keep it. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, uh, If anyone will not work, it's not talking about people who can't work, but if people won't work, if they choose not to work, neither neither shall he eat. 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So God created us to work. Work in and of itself is a good thing. Made hard by the fall, but work is is, is a good thing from God. It's not just like a necessary evil or something like that. But second, along with that, God also created us to produce as good stewards. Notice what he said. Again, pre-fall, Genesis 1, God created mankind in his own image. Uh, male and female, he created uh, them. and then, But verse 28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, but don't just fill it, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, we are God's stewards. We're his agents. We're his hands and feet to uh, create society creation to build this earth, to steward, to oversee God's creation and and make this world into what he created it, to be, uh, You know, God wants our lives to count something. He just doesn't want us here breathing and taking up space on planet Earth. He has a purpose uh, for us. And in fulfilling that purpose, we are called to be good stewards of what he gives us, of the time and the talent and the treasures and the opportunities that, that he puts before us. I mean, think about uh, the, the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, um, Five talents, Jesus expected a five-talent return. Two talents, two-talent return. One talent, one-talent return. So, once again, the antidote to, uh, you know, being overly focused on accomplishment is not... Caring, it is not not caring at all. I mean, we ought to be thinking about how can I leverage my life best to build the kingdom of God? How can I most make a difference? How can I do God's will in my life? How do I need to order my life? What kind of habits do I need to have? Uh, where do I need to discipline myself? What kind of gifts and talents has God given me? What does he want to accomplish through me? If you're a Christian, that ought to be one of the guiding questions of your life. I don't want to Stand before Jesus someday and just hear that I wasted my life. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So I'm saying there's a balance here. Now, what what is the balance? Well, this is what I think Solomon is going to say to us today. That accomplishments are empty if they do not honor Jesus and flow out of a relationship with him. But the flip side of that would be is accomplishments are meaningful when they do honor Jesus and flow out of a relationship with him. We're called to accomplish things, called to do things, but not for ourselves to do things for the glory of God, for the building of the kingdom of God, for the honor of Jesus Christ. So we just want to start with two scriptures. One in Ecclesiastes 2, kind of just the, the main verse in the passage one that we've looked at before in this series in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, just to kind of, for our foundation. And then we're gonna actually walk through most of Ecclesiastes uh, chapter two. But verse 11 in Ecclesiastes two says this. Solomon says, And I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. And remember, under the sun is life apart from God. Now, we're we're gonna read this list of accomplishments. And none of us are gonna measure up to his list of accomplishments. I mean, what we're gonna read here, he doesn't even list the greatest accomplishment of his life, which was the building of the temple. And so the answer is not just to do more. I mean, part of what he's saying is there's got to be something more than doing more. Because if you do more empty things, you still have emptiness. That's the idea. Contrast that with 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not, here's that word again, in vain in the Lord. So, we can work, we can accomplish, we can do, and it be in vain. Or we can work and accomplish and it not be in vain. Now, you may have the, the, the question of, well, how can accomplishment be empty? I mean, isn't it good to accomplish things? Well, I want to suggest four ways to you from Ecclesiastes chapter two that accomplishment can actually be empty. So, number one, Accomplishment is empty when it's self-focused. Accomplishment is empty when it's self-focused. Now, remember, uh, we're going we're to read verses 1 through 9, but hear it in light of verse 11, okay? So here's, here's what he says. He says, uh, and he starts out talking about pleasure, and we we looked at this text earlier in the series focused on pleasure. He said, I said in my heart, come now, we'll test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. So he tried pleasure and that didn't satisfy him, but now he moves on to accomplishment. Notice what he says, and when we looked at this text before, I pointed out how many times he uses the word I in particular, me, myself, that kind of thing. What really hit me as I was studying this week is on top of I, how many times he says myself. So he says, I made my works great, I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards i made myself gardens and orchards and i planted all kinds of fruit trees in them i made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove i acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. And, you know, I assume he's stating facts here, but think about everything he says. And remember verse 11, it's all empty all vain, all grasping for the wind. He says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kind. And then he sums this up by saying this. He says, so I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Now, I'm not saying what he said isn't true, but how's that gonna hit you if somebody says that to you? I mean, Roger, if you and Preston didn't walk up to each other and Preston walks up to you and says, Hey, I'm Preston and I'm great and I excel more than anybody in Jefferson City, Tennessee. Are you gonna be like, Hey, I wanna become best friends (laughs) with, with this guy? Maybe that's why everything's I and myself, it's self focused. I'm saying at the end of the day, that leaves us empty. I mean, it leaves us empty in death for sure because nothing's going to last. But if it's separated from God, if it's under the sun, it's going to leave us empty in this life. It's going to separate us from other people. There's not going to be people to enjoy it with. Lee Coca, the legendary car maker, wrote in his autobiography: quote, here I am in the twilight years of my life, still wondering what it's all about. I can tell you this: fame and fortune is for the birds. Tim Keller put it this way, and and I think we need to hear this. He's, He's reminding us as Christians to remember the gospel in everything we do, including our work. And he says this. He says, Without the gospel of Jesus, we will have to toil, not for the joy of serving others, nor the satisfaction of a job well done, but to make a name for ourselves. And really, apart from Jesus, and apart from wanting to serve others, that's what we're left with. Number two, we see in verse 10 that accomplishment is empty when it's sinful or when it leads to sin. Notice what he says. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. What was the reward from all of his labor? Whatever his eyes desired to see, not withholding his heart from any pleasure. And so what he's saying here, I think, is that if accomplishment is rooted in sin or it leads us to sin, then it's fleeting. It's not lasting. It's empty, So I mean, think about it. When, um, like, if you're a student and you cheat on a test and you make a hundred, that's still empty at the end of the day, because you're not right with God in it. You didn't really learn anything. It's going to hurt you and not help you in the long run because you've focused on you've taken a shortcut and uh, you, you've, you're, tr- you're, being tr- you're training yourself to take shortcuts. Maybe you got away with it this time, but that will catch up with you in life. You know, if, if at your job you're all the time taking shortcuts or, or you're, you're cheating or you're making money off uh, mistreating other people or you're lying or whatever it may be, um, you might think you're doing well. It's going to catch up to you. We reap what we sow uh, be sure our sins will find us out, is, is, what, is what the scripture uh, says to us. So if something is inherently sinful, it's empty, no matter what people think about it or what we accomplish externally. But also, you know, what he's saying here, you know, he, he's, he's making this connection. He's basically, this is the reward for my labor. In other words, I've accomplished all this. I ought to be able to do whatever I want to do. I ought to be able to enjoy it. And, and enjoy it apart from thinking about the morality of it. It's just whatever my eyes saw. You know, this is one of the lies that Satan even tells us as Christians. You know, you're doing good over here. You're serving the Lord. You're accomplishing these things for God. You can, you can take a shortcut here. You, you, you deserve this. You can, you can enjoy this. I mean, here's... I think an example of it, you know, in the whole Ravi Zacharias scandal, you know, where he's, um, you know, committed all this sexual immorality, which, you know, it's really sexual abuse when you're, uh, you know, a minister in some type of position of, you know, kind of power over people when it's not an equal relationship. You know, multiple of his victims have said that part of what he said to them is, you know, I'm under so much pressure. I'm doing all this traveling. I'm doing all this to serve God. My marriage is just a business arrangement. This is okay. I I I deserve this because of all that I'm doing and using that uh, you know to manipulate people into him mistreating uh, them and, and and so he's like, you know I've done all this so I deserve to be able to do this which is such a lie and it's evil and I think it's what Solomon is getting at here So accomplishment is empty when it's sinful or it leads to sin but number three accomplishment is empty when it's fleeting and not lasting and so in, in, in the next kind of section of this chapter in verses 11 through 23, Solomon deals with accomplishment in light of death. So in, in other words, it's, it's, it's this question. If we're gonna die someday, what does this mean about what, what should that mean about what I do with my life right now? And here's, here's what he says. He says, and, and remember how much he's accomplished. He's accomplished more than, than any of us will ever accomplish. And here's verse 11 again. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done. Think about everything he just named. And once again, add the temple on top of that. And on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. I mean, think about it. Accomplishing that much and saying it's vain and it's empty and it's like grasping for the wind, which you can never catch. No profit. And so he says, Then I turn myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. See, he's thinking about himself. I'm gonna die and somebody's gonna take my place and what's this all mean? And he says, then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. And that's obvious. Wisdom's better than folly. like Light's better than darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his uh, head, but the fool walks in darkness. But then he says, yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me, and why then was I more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. He's like, I had all this wisdom, but I'm gonna die just like the fool, and if everything is under the sun, and this life is all there is, What's the point? What's the difference in me living with wisdom or me living with foolishness? He's ultimately saying, if this life is all there is, then nothing really matters, including what we did, what we said. You can be a fool, you can be wise, but in the grave, whatever. He says, for there is no more remembrance of the wise and of the fool forever, forever since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. In other words, it's it's like a picture or a plaque or a trophy behind an air conditioning unit. If everybody just forgets about it and it's all about this life, and this life is all there is, what's the point to any of it? He says, verse sixteen. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Then notice verse 17, therefore, I've quoted this maybe in every message in the series, but here's the specific context. He's talking about the emptiness of his accomplishments. If there is no God, if there is no eternity, he says, therefore, I hated life. It's like, if I've done all this and I'm just going to die and it doesn't even matter, I hate life. Life. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will rule over all my labor. I've done all this, but I just got to leave it to somebody else. He may go undo it all. He says, "In which I toiled, and which I have shown myself wise under the sun, this also is vanity. therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. this also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun, for all his days are sorrowful, and his work burdensome even in. the night his heart takes no rest in other words I'm losing sleep over this this also is vanity in other words what does it matter what we really accomplish if it's all gone after death if it's all under the sun and so what's the implication the implication is, if what we do is gonna matter, there has to be a God, number one. And number two, we have to be doing what we're doing for that God so that what we do will outlive us, it will count forever. This is why Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on the earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupts and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Several years ago, uh, there's an article in a magazine, some construction workers were laying uh, a foundation for a building outside of Pompeii in Italy. You remember the Mount Vesuvius eruption? And you know, this huge volcanic eruption, and they actually found the corpse of a woman who must have been fleeing from this, and uh, you know, the hot ashes overtook her, and somehow, in those ashes, what she was clutching in her hands were preserved, and she was uh, clutching these very valuable uh, jewels, gone in a moment. And and that's the thing about anything material on this earth, if this earth, if this life is all there is, it's gone in a moment. That's why Jim Elliott, the famous missionary to the Alka Indians, who was martyred, says he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which we can never lose. Someone has written, and and I think this ought to be something that, that guides our lives, a conviction, is that our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. That's what Solomon's saying to us. You can be an absolute, roaring, earthly success, but if it doesn't matter in eternity, what's it really matter? Number four, accomplishment is empty, when our heart is not in a place to enjoy it. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. You see, God wants us to live in such a way, to work in such a way where we actually enjoy it. I mean, I'm emphasizing eternity here because Solomon's emphasizing eternity here, but I, I, the Christian life is not just be miserable now and then enjoy heaven. God wants us to enjoy him, to enjoy the gifts that he gives, to enjoy uh, serving him, to enjoy uh, you know, using the talents that, uh, that he has given us. He wants us to be thankful You see, I think this is really important right now. As people slip into despair, I think part of the antidote to that is recognizing daily that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. That as sinners, we deserve hell. We have a lot of problems, but the good that we get is a gift of the grace of God that we don't deserve. And to seek to be thankful about that I mean, it's it's my conviction that every good and perfect gift comes from God, but I'm working on being more intentional about being thankful daily because there's something about being thankful that just transforms us. I mean, we can dwell on the negative, we can dwell on everything that's wrong, and Lord knows we can find a million things that are wrong to dwell on right now. But what about what's right? What about what's good? What about God's grace? What about the blessings he gives us? And and once again, sometimes what we do when things are tough, we get so caught up in that and, and, and it's just like this cycle. We start doing things to cope with that that keep making things worse, whereas we can make a choice by the grace of God to daily uh, you know, have the habits and the disciplines that we need to have to do the things that we need to do to seek the Lord, to, to be wise, and to take the steps that we need to take where uh, you know, we can live every day to the full in the will of God for the glory of God. And we can't control our circumstances, but we can control that. And that's the way to make the best out of our lives, independent of our circumstances. And and I think this is what he's telling us to do, enjoy our labor. Labor for the Lord and be thankful. But then notice verse 25, he says, for who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? Now, I don't know exactly why the New King James translates this more than I, because basically every A Hebrew Old Testament scholar that I've read about this passage in Ecclesiastes says that it should be translated for who can eat or who can have enjoyment without him. And what he's saying is that it's all empty, except in Christ, that's where lasting satisfaction is found. There's a psychologist by the name of Madeline Levine who wrote an article that I think we need to hear the gist of. She, she says she's been counseling teenagers for over 25 years. But in her words, uh, she says she began, has begun to see a new breed of unhappy teenagers, smart, successful, and privileged kids who feel utterly lost and empty. And I think the reason this struck me so much is because it's real. I mean, she knows what she's talking about. And, and she used one particular client as an example. A 15-year-old girl that she described as bright, personable, highly pressured by her adoring but frequently preoccupied parents, and which, you know, kids are not the problem today. Adults are the problem today. And some kids' problem is how much their uh, their parents are pushing them. Uh, I mean, some kids are having identity issues because their parents are pushing them so much to be a certain thing or to accomplish a certain thing or to make certain grades or excel at a certain sport or a certain musical instrument or or whatever else, uh, probably out of their own insecurities. and Maybe that's what's going on here. She described the girl as very angry. And, And so as they were meeting, as they were having this counseling session, she said she recognized what she calls her cutter's disguise. You know, people who cut themselves dress a certain way to cover that up. And so she figured this out and apparently was able to convince uh, the the girl to pull her sleeves up, show her arms. And and she said that she was startled to see that on one of her uh, forearms, the girl had carved the word with a razor empty into her arm. And she said of this, I tried to imagine how intensely unhappy my young patient must have felt to cut her distress into her flesh. The most common thing I hear in my office from the kids is, I'm fake. The surface of their family life always looks good. The lawns are always perfectly manicured. The houses always look beautiful. But when you get to what's going on beneath these kids' T-shirts, there's not much happening inside. And the point of everything that Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes, it's about what's happening on the inside. And we need Jesus on the inside of us to fill us and to satisfy us. And apart from that, whatever we do, whatever we have externally, is gonna be empty. So the antidote to just empty accomplishments is Jesus. And so how can we stay out of the ditch on either side of the road? How can we allow Jesus to transform us in this area of our lives? Well, let's go to the New Testament and connect this to Christ, connect this to the New Testament like we have with every message in this series. We've got a Bible. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I just want to show you three ways from this text that we can actually find our identity, our fulfillment in Christ, and, and, and what we do can be meaningful, something that we can rejoice in and not just be something that's empty. So number one, I want us to, I want us to learn to de- define our identity by Jesus instead of our accomplishments. 1 Corinthians 3, let's start reading in verse five. He says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. And what's the implication? He's saying, we're not really anything. It's about the Lord. Don't follow us. He's the one that you're trusting in. He's the one that opened your heart, that enabled you to believe. it's, It's about him. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God did it, not me. He says, so then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. It's, it's him. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Each one will receive his own reward. It's received, not achieved, according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You're God's building. He's defining him, them by the Lord. But then I think the key phrase, the beginning of verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me. As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. How did I do what I've done? It's by the grace of God. He goes on and he says in verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? We talked about this in the habit series earlier this year. Craig Rochelle says, who before do? In other words, if we want to not have empty accomplishments, uh, what we do flows out of who we are in Christ. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about the resurrection, he says, last of all, if you seen by me also, is by one born out of due time. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What's our identity? Our identity is in the finished work of Christ. It's in the grace of God. It's Christ in me. It's the fact that I'm an accepted, adopted, beloved child of God. And if that's who I am, I don't have to try to create some kind of outward identity. I don't have to try to uh, achieve an identity based on what I accomplish. You see, this is part of the good news of the gospel. There's freedom in this. In every other world, of you, your identity is achieved. In, in the gospel, your identity is received by the grace of God. We, I am who I am by the grace of God. But notice what he, he goes on to, to say here. He says, but his grace toward me he was here. here's that word again, was not in vain but I labored more abundantly than they all, all the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You see, if we know who we are in Christ we're then free to serve him by uh, the, the grace of God and to accomplish what god wants us to accomplish but here's the thing about uh, about the gospel i said before that failure is not the antidote to pride the antidote to pride is the gospel because in the gospel i'm saying i'm nothing i'm nobody I, i deserve to go to hell but yet God, by his grace, loves me and wanted me and, and, and accepts me, and, 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 and I'm a child of God. That, that, that in the gospel, I can do the will of God and I can achieve, but I can give God the glory for it like they were in 1 Corinthians chapter three because it wasn't me, it was the grace of God in me. And so, you know, only in the gospel are, are we free to Well, think about it this way. If your identity is achieved, there's only one of two possible outcomes. Either you achieve the identity that you want, you're a success in your own mind, and you get proud because you did it. Or you fail to live up to this identity that you think you ought to have, and then you're a failure, and then you despair. And in that paragraph, you can diagnose many Of the issues that people are dealing with internally in our society today. But in the gospel, in the gospel, there's freedom. Because it's not achieved, it's received. And if it's received, I can't take any credit for it. And then what I do is just saying thank you to Jesus for his grace and how good he's been to me. So what does this mean practically? Well, let's relate it to work. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Your Christian faith gives you a new spiritual power, an inner gyroscope that keeps you from being overthrown by either success, failure, or boredom. Regarding success and failure, the gospel helps Christians find their deepest identity, not in our accomplishments but in who we are in Christ. This keeps our egos from inflating too much during seasons of prosperity, and it prevents bitterness and despondency during times of adversity. But while some jobs seduce us into overwork and anxiety, others tempt us to surrender to drudgery, only working for the weekend, doing just what is necessary to get by when someone is watching. Paul calls that eye service And charges us to think of every job as working for God who sees everything and loves us. That makes high-pressure jobs bearable and even the most modest work meaningful. It's who we are in Christ. Who before do. It's Christ in me. Listen, teenagers... Uh, if you know who you are in Christ, you don't have to waste years on some of this stupid uh, teenage drama of people trying to fit you into their mold and trying to make you uh, a, a certain person. And I guarantee you, uh, you'll look back years from now and, and think that was silly, that was ridiculous, that was a waste of time. Why don't you just go ahead and see it now and begin to define your life by Christ in you and who you are in him and his love for you and what he's done in you, uh, for you and in you and find your security in him because, listen, you can't count on security from other people. Somebody may think you're awesome today and they may reject you tomorrow. So much of stuff, so much of our culture is outward, image-focused and driven. And listen, none of that lasts and most of it isn't even real because everything can be filtered now. It's who we are in Christ. So this means that we have to have Jesus as the foundation of our lives. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 3.11. He says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus. Christ. Is Jesus truly the foundation of your life? I'm not saying, do you go to church? Have you prayed a prayer? Uh, You know, have have you, uh, uh, you know, said some certain words, believe something? Is Jesus truly the foundation of your life? Is he the Lord of your life? Are you building your life on him? Are you trusting him, resting in him, relying on him, committed to him? If not, he invites you today to repent and turn to him in faith, believing he died for you, believing he rose from the dead, and right now surrendering yourself to him becoming new in him receiving the identity that he has for you in the gospel but then last he tells us then to build a life that lasts on that foundation by doing godly works look at what he says in verses 12 through 15 he says now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold silver precious stones wood hay straw each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. You can't lose your salvation if Christ is really your foundation. Yet so is through fire. But what he is saying, you can be saved and you can waste your life. You can be saved and be embarrassed at the judgment seat of Christ. You can be saved and have nothing to show for your life. He's saying don't live that way accomplish things for the glory of God, for the good of people, Uh, you know, how do we do this? Live every day to be ready for the final day. I mean, think about life in that way, not just getting by today, but that there's a final day coming, that, that I'm gonna have to stand before Jesus Christ, and I'm living to be ready for that day. And then out of that, reverse engineer our lives to live according to the will of God. In other words, if I'm gonna have to stand before Jesus, What's his will for my life? What's his plan for my life? What's he want me to do? How does he want me to live? And then day in and day out, we can choose to use our time wisely by living with discipline and godly habits. We can pursue Christ. We can take advantage of opportunities that he gives us by using our gifts, our talents, our opportunities to serve God by serving others. And ultimately, do we do this? Are we living for the glory of God? Or is it for ourselves? So what I'm saying is this. You may think, how can I serve God? I'm a stay-at-home mom. Listen, if you're doing it for the glory of God to try to raise those kids, uh, to train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you're accomplishing something that's gonna last you may think, I've got some kind of ho-hum, mundane job. I don't know, how am I going to help anybody? Well, can you love your coworkers? Can you serve them? Can you show Christ to them? Can you do what you're doing uh, to, for the best you can, for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ? Anything can glorify God if it's done with the right heart, with the right motive for him. We conclude with this. It's, this is an old-school poem It's got some old school language in it. The the message is timeless, though. It's written by a guy named C.T. Studd back in the 1800s. C.T. Studd was like the top cricket player in the world. And he left that to become a missionary in China. I mean, this would have been like then, this would have been like LeBron James announcing today that he's leaving the NBA to go be a missionary on some remote island, something like that. But, But he wrote this, Two little lines I heard one day, Traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and for my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, Gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done. For Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, Thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, 'twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Lord Jesus, I pray that that's a conviction that would guide our lives, that we'll see that we'll only have one life that it's fleeting, that it's a vapor, but that eternity is forever. It's something our minds can't even comprehend. Lord, at the same time, I pray that you'd help us to see who you are and what what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then day in and day out to live in a way where we're building a life that's gonna last. Lord, help us not to waste our lives. Help us not to waste our lives with laziness and insignificant things and lack of discipline and just apathy. But Lord, help us at the same time not to define our lives by what we do and what we accomplish and what we produce. But help us to define our lives, to see ourselves by I am what I am, by the grace of God, by Christ in me, the hope of glory, by the fact that I'm a dearly beloved child of God. But help us to live out of that, to say thank you and to honor and to glorify you. Lord, I I pray that you... Just pierce our hearts right now. And God, fill us with conviction. And Lord, help us to act on this. I just ask you, how do you need to act on this today? Maybe some of you, you're believing the lie that you're nothing or nobody. There's nothing you can do. You're, You're not good enough. You don't measure up. You've not done enough. I just encourage you to take these scriptures and and meditate on them and claim them until they become a part of who you are. I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. It's not me, it's Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. He gave his all for you. Maybe there's some of you that you've never acted on that. You've never trusted Him, given your life to Him, made Him the foundation of your life. Here in the room, online, God's doing a work in your heart. Just respond to Him. Surrender to Him. Just confess, Jesus, You are my Lord. I ask You to forgive me. I ask You to take control of me. I trust in You. In your death, burial, and resurrection for my salvation, the forgiveness of my sins. If you have questions about that, or if you made that Commitment today, let us know. Text TLC Decision 94,000. If you're online, contact one of the hosts. Come see me. Fill out the connection card. Let us help you take your next steps. Maybe some of you would say, I'm a Christian. But if I'm real honest, I've been building wood, hay, and stubble in my life, been wasting my life. Maybe today you need to surrender to Jesus again. Commit to put Him first, to seek the will of God, to live for Him daily to stop making it about you and what you're trying to accomplish, what you're trying to build and and just say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? How do you want to use me? How can my life last forever? So Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that by your spirit that you would enable and empower us to just take the steps that we need to take to do what we need to do uh, with this.